is it ever too late for a parent to change the way they're interacting with and parenting their child? It's a powerful opportunity for parents to take that moment to heal and to say, you know what? I may see it differently, but I hear you. I want to introduce Dr. Charles Sophie. He's a board-certified psychiatrist. He's a former medical director of the Department of Child and Family Services here in L.A., the largest agency of its type in the entire United States. What do you think the difference is right now with this particular generation? When I turned 16, you could get a driver's license when you were 16. Right. In some states now, it's, what, 18? Some states, yeah. Yeah, but when I turned 16... You could get it when you were 16. Yeah. So when I was 15, 364 days, 23 right. hours and 59 minutes, right. you were ready. I was standing at the DMV right. to get a driver's license. Right. I didn't have a car, but I, I wanted a driver's license so I could drive because that was freedom. Right now, you could move, right. you could go. Right. And now, this generation, they don't even go get a driver's license when they're 16. They don't need to. They don't want them. Right. They have no urgency for right. it. It's, their phone helps them. They have Ubers. They don't need anything. They don't have those kinds of needs that we did a long time ago. They're dating at a later date. Yep. They're getting their driver's license later. Yep. They're having sex later. They just don't seem to have the urgency to get engaged, involved with the world right. the way we did in an earlier generation. It's kind of sad a little bit because it's holding them back. And now, I think this slows them down even more. Uh, yes, a lot more. Because now they're laden with anxiety and lots of academic issues and lots of social issues. And I say slow them down as though it's a bad thing. They do what they want to do. It's yeah. not that it's wrong. It's no. just different. Right. And it'll be an impact on a generation that we didn't expect, I think. But I think what's happened now does slow them down. Yeah. Before, maybe it was just a preference because they were more homebodies and all. But I also saw a statistic just a few days ago that loneliness was higher among millennials than any other age group, even the elderly that are yeah. feeling like they're sitting off right. by themselves watching the paint fade, which is not true of all elderly, but I'm talking about those that maybe yeah. they're Loved ones have died, their spouse has died, even some of their family, and they're feeling pretty alone. Even millennials are experiencing yeah. loneliness at a higher rate per thousand than our elderly. And I'm sure some of it has to do with technology. I think it is. I think they're living through their phones with two-dimensional yeah. relationships. It's, they're sitting next to the person they're talking to. Yeah. Through their phone. Yeah. It's terrible. And that's why in the book, I talk about ways to look at these things and put some parameters in place and make some family values, start to interact and talk and reevaluate yourself. One of the things that I liked, obviously liked a lot about this book, because I'm talking about it so much, time for a shameless plug. <laughs> I'm talking about family values. It's Dr. Sophie's new book. Reset Trust, Boundaries, and Connection with Your Child. And he said he wouldn't have this book if it wasn't for me. And I'll tell you right. what he means by that. I hounded him and hounded him and hounded him some more to write this book because he's had 22 years experience as medical director at Department of Child and Family Services. He's had decades experience as a board-certified and licensed child psychiatrist adult psychiatry as well. But in working with families, I just felt like one of us was going to have to write a book about <laughs> this right now. And so I said, you write the book and yes. I'll write the foreword. Okay. But I really did. I hounded you to write this book, as you know. It's just fortuitous that it came out when it did yeah. after the pandemic, right. when I think families need this. But so bad. one of the things that I really like about this is you don't ever throw parents under the bus. You really believe that inherent in every parent, there are strengths and passions that they can build on. In chapter three of the book, 
you really walk parents through identifying what their strengths are, what they're really good at as a parent. Even if they think they're a bad parent, you think there are some things they do well and they need to identify those. Absolutely. Why do you think that's so important? Because I didn't walk into one home at DCFS in the middle of the night or in the daytime or whatever time we were called out to a home where I didn't see a parent who loved their child on some level. Very rarely. I mean, if they were out of control from drugs, yeah, maybe. But other than that, they loved their kid and their kids loved them. The heartbreak was taking them apart. And every kid found their way back somehow, whether we put them over here or over there. So I saw that. And that's a strength. At the very least, that's a strength. Then there were parents who cooked well or, you know, snuggled with their Anything I could latch onto as a strength, we did because that's what we built from. And that's what I want parents to do. Yeah, you had a different approach to that, I think, than a lot of people. I'm a big fan of social workers. I think they do a noble task. But your philosophy was always to unify families, not to fragment them. You always tried to find a way. To keep them together. To keep them together because the alternatives were never good. Couldn't put them back together. It's very difficult. I would stay until I could get a doctor or somebody to come and draw a lab, a blood test, so I could see if a father was on drugs. Or I would leave the kid. I didn't want to take this child if we didn't have to. We even put mobile vans together to be able to bring services right there when we got there to answer questions so we could leave them together at least overnight and get, you know, the community to jump in, the church to jump in, somebody to help just to get us through the night. Because once we took them apart, it was hard to put back together. Yeah. And foster care was certainly no answer. No. A lot of times it was and a lot of times it wasn't. Yeah, but that's a crapshoot. Yes. You put them in foster care, you may get a loving, caring, giving foster parent, or you may get somebody that's running a foster kid combine. Right. Or you could get a loving parent, foster parent for a month, and then after that you got a monster because they can't deal with it, and then they react to it. That biological bond is hard to replicate. Yes, it is. And, I mean, they're attached to that parent. The first nine months of their life, they attach to that parent. And they will find their way back to that emotional safety and permanence that they can find. Yeah. People that read this book are going to find that you help them find what they're good at and build on that. You don't criticize them and throw them under the bus. You do talk about toxic power dynamics, and you do a really good job talking about how to avoid confrontation head-to-head like two bulls running together in the middle of the room, if possible, and finding some other way to resolve conflict. Right. I mean, what good is it when you're both at it? We're not going anywhere. And I always tell parents, if there's somebody's yelling, start to whisper. If we whisper, that person who's yelling has to stop to listen. At the very least, use that. But conflict isn't going to be resolved when you're head to head. Yeah. Do you think everybody has whether it's inherited or they've specifically chosen it, everybody has a predominant parenting style, right? Yes, whether, exactly. Whether they experienced it themselves or they've inherited or, or they've been traumatized into whatever, yes. They enter parenting with a preconceived idea of what it should be like and who they're going to be in it. I used to have parents that would come in and they would be at odds about who was right and who was wrong. And they would come in and argue to the death. I'm sitting there thinking, ain't neither one of you within a country right. mile <laughs> of, exactly. of what you ought right. to be doing. Both right. of you need to just hit the erase button right. and start over right. because you haven't got a clue exactly. of right. what this child's going to respond right. to. Right. You're doing the best you can. Children learn what they live, and you're just kind of reflecting how you were brought up doesn't have to be that way. And I'm not going to tell everybody everything in the book, but you talk about the balanced parent, the feather parent, the seesaw parent, the tyrant. You talk about the different styles of parenting. And you really have to match this to your child's personality. Correct. And you may change within those parenting styles from month to month, week to week, depending on your child's development and how they respond. I always told parents, if you've got a rebellious child, you don't want to take an authoritative approach. Right. you got two head-to-heads. It doesn't work. If you've got a really passive child, you don't want to take a permissive approach. Yeah, I you mean, don't. you guys right. will sit there and watch each other right. <laughs> doze right. off. Right. I mean, somebody's right. got to take the initiative. Right. Exactly. 
Dr. Michelle Borba, internationally renowned educator, recognized for her solution-based strategies to strengthening children's character, their resilience, and reducing peer cruelty. I hear parents all the time say, you know, I talk to my kids and they don't listen, they roll their eyes, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they may roll their eyes, but trust me, they're always watching. They may not acknowledge it. They may go, yeah, 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 yeah. And they may not process it for a week. And it may play back in their mind 10 days later, but they hear it and they're always watching. And if they're seeing, even if you put your coffee cup down a little harder that morning, if you've got that frown on your face, if you're sighing deeply, they pick up all of those cues that you're stressed, you're worried, and let me tell you, you're home base. And if they feel that they've got a solid home base to return to, then they feel better about venturing out into the world. If they don't know that that home base is going to be there when they come back, if they think you're going to fall apart, then it really shakes their confidence. I get it. Parents have a legitimate reason to be stressed right now. So many of them have lost their jobs. So many of them have lost businesses that they spent 30 years building, and it was a narrow margin. And when everything shut down, they just couldn't sustain it. I get that. But at some point, they've got to decide, I have to focus on what matters and that's all of us being healthy. And if that means you got to downsize, move from a house to an apartment, whatever, what matters is that everybody is healthy, everybody's together, and focus on the positives. It can't be that you're just wringing your hands every minute or you're going to teach your child anxiety. Yes. And when we look at stories about children, I, I love some of the, the ones from Anna Freud from years back. Tracking kids in World War II in England with the Blitz, who survived that war? I mean, horrific, horrific. It wasn't the kids who were catered out and put onto the, the pastors on the wayside of England. It was the children who endeared and made it in the home. I remember a, a, a journalist interviewing me when I was writing Thrivers on resilience. And halfway through it, I realized that this woman was 85-ish and had been a very young kid during World War II. And I said, well, wait a minute, hold the fort here. Let's flip this. How did you make it through a blitz of every night with the air raid sirens and the black curtains? And she said, she honestly stopped and said, I don't remember that. I said, come on, you live in London during that? How could you not? She says, boy, I remember the air raid sirens. But then I remember when we'd pull the black light curtains. And from that moment on, would I remember us playing Ring Around the Rosies and singing? I know my parents must have been scared, but I never felt that. I remember us singing and playing games during that time. And it struck me like, wow, there's the piece that we may be missing. The power we have, and I don't think sometimes we forget, is those everyday little moments that you said, taking the deep breath with our kids, being able to just say, it's okay, we're going to get through it. Maybe there's a positive mantra we can come up with. And if you say it enough, I know sometimes as a teen, you don't want to look like you're lecturing them. But if you say it enough, and it looks like you're just saying it out loud, what happens is, I got it. Oh, I am frustrated. I'll get through it. Pretty soon, your voice becomes your child's inner voice. And they've got something to counter that negative. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth. But when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. I always tell parents, look, I want you to at least once a week 
have a family meeting where everybody gets around in the living room or the kitchen table, no phones, no TV, and write out an agenda ahead of time and have a family meeting. And I can see in their face, like, you know, that's so corny. Nobody does that anymore. And I tell them, the more unnatural it feels, the more you need to do it. Because if it feels unnatural to get the family around and talk about how we're doing and what's really important, the more unnatural that feels, the more important it is that you do it because it shouldn't feel unnatural. And I try to tell these parents, look, talk to your kids about things that don't matter. You watch these TV shows and they're medical shows, and what's the first thing they say when they roll somebody into the ER? They say, uh, start an IV with ringer's lactate. Nobody knows what that means. It's just something they say on TV. But what they're doing is they're just getting an IV started in a vein so when they figure out what they do need medicinally, they've got a vein open, and all they have to do is just plug the medicine in. That's what I tell parents. I say, look, Talk to your children about things that don't matter, sports, a video game, the weather, the dog. So when it comes time to talk about things that do matter, you've got that channel open. The first time you talk to them, it's not about something of gravity, and they're going like, what is this? My dad's talking to me? No, you talk to them all the time. It's just now you've got the channel open and you're talking about something that matters. Talk about anything just so the channel stays open so when it's time to plug in something of importance, it doesn't seem so unusual. You've already got it going. And it's okay to do it while you're walking the dog. It's okay to do it while you're playing a game of horse. It's okay to do it while you're playing with dolls or something. They feel less conspicuous if you're doing something while you're talking about it. Yeah, side-by-side talking sometimes is a lot less threatening than face-to-face talking, but there's another value to that. I'm so into family meetings. But when I looked at thrivers and what makes a thriver, I looked at all the research and found out there's seven traits that are all teachable, and one of those you just nailed, and that's curiosity. A thriver is a kid who's open to ideas and possibilities. And how you learn that, one of the best ways is the family meeting. Not only does it help you just create that relationship of safety, but it also hopefully is the parent. You're allowing that kid to be able to speak up and share his ideas. You don't have to agree with them as long as he's respectful, but we've got to help our kids get out of these safe space zones where they feel like they can't have any kind of riskiness, uh, but they're open to possibilities and say things. And that's exactly the way we can do it. That curiosity and risk adverse, oh, wow, that's so critical for a child. Have a voice. Parents ask me a lot, how do you motivate a kid that's like, eh, I don't care? Well, I always say, appeal to their greed. And that sounds like, what? Well, look, everybody has a currency, right? Everybody wants something. And if you can identify that kid's currency, what's important to them And you can show them a way to constructively, positively earn that currency and show them that they can earn more than they could ever sneak around and steal. I promise you they're not dumb. If they understand, look, if I do A, B, and C, then I can play my video game or go to my friend's house and not be in trouble for it instead of sneaking out the window or staying up all night after they think I'm in bed playing a video game, if you can appeal to their greed and show them how they can get what they want. I had a parent tell me one time, I said, how's your kid doing in school? He said, well, she's making all A's, but she's just doing it to manipulate me. (laughs) And I'm like, so? She still had to learn the stuff to get the A's to manipulate you. Let her manipulate you. Are you kidding me? She, honest to God, said she's just making A's to manipulate me. And I'm like, well, so be manipulated. I I could not believe that she said that. But I think you've got to appeal to their greed 
and let them see, hey, I can earn what I want. Again, that's the kid building from the inside out. The building from the inside out. And remember back when when we asked all the kids, what's the, the key point? I'm overwhelmed. And then the next thing along the way is I'm just not as motivated as I used to be. One of the things that kids are also saying that goes right back to your point is because they're so overwhelmed with the whole idea. If you've got a kid like that with so much work, there's a couple of simple little things you can do. And that is number one, I know it's a huge project. So what's the first thing you're going to start on? Point them in the direction of the first row or the first problem, little kids in particular. Teach them to do the hardest thing first, because when you're doing homework and all you're doing is sitting there about, oh, my gosh, I got so much to do. Well, get the thing that's really bugging you the most out of the way. In the next two hours, you'll be able to smooth sail. Another one is a coaching strategy that's so wonderful. You, uh, I had a piano teacher, Mr. White, who was driving me absolutely crazy as a kid, because if I made one mistake anywhere through the problem, as I was going along with the recital, I'd have to start all over again. So all I would do was sit there and worry about where my mistake was, and I hated piano. Then bless Miss Thompson, because she came in and she had a whole different technique that we can use with our kids. She said, Michelle, let's find your one little stumbler, the one little thing that's bugging you. Oh, there it is. Now let's just practice that one little stumbler over and over and over again. What happened is my stress went down. I started at the beginning and went straight through. That's what a coach does. They never say, you might as well get off the field because you can't do anything right. They rewind the tape and say, it's your foot going that way. Let's make your foot go this way. Let's keep practicing that one thing. You'll get your kid over the stump and be able to keep on going. Little things can make such a difference with kids if you just help them so that they that unmotivation is really a fear for some kids. Dr. Shafali, acclaimed New York Times bestselling author, international speaker, clinical psychologist. She's an expert in family dynamics. There's a lot of research now, and I'm sure you've seen it, that these social media platforms with their algorithms and interval ratio reward systems and all are designed to be addictive. Yes. And they do become addictive. You say one of the biggest mistakes we make in a relationship with our children is that we presume ownership over them. I'm really curious, and I have an opinion about this that I'll express too, but I want to know yours. Do you think this generation of children, and by that I mean those that are now, I guess it probably cuts across two generations, but those that are starting into the primary grades of school up through college, are being too coddled and protected by parents and then by extension teachers and professors now? Or do you think they're just smoothing the way for them? Too coddled or are they just trying to help them make it through? Well, I think they are being too coddled, but not just by a parent, a singular parent. I think as a reaction from us from our generation, where we waited for the bus, where we waited uh, for our, we had to go get our own food delivered. You know, we had to go and do the delivery ourselves. We never had this, you know, door-to-door service. We didn't have Uber and Uber Eats and everything on our fingertips. I think we have created, our generation has now created all these apps or allowed them to come into fruition. And now our children have instant gratification and they can order their perfect meal at the age of eight, all by the click of their these buttons on their phone. I think all of this has created an indulgence of material possessions and luxuries that have created a lethargy in our physical and emotional stamina. So we literally have no stamina. I mean, I watch my 20-year-old daughter have an epileptic fit almost if her Uber Eats driver made, got the wrong order. And I look at her absolutely flabbergasted, but knowing I am part of this creation where she cannot tolerate a bad order. And I tell her, get off your butt and cook your own food. How about that? Yeah. But I have done this. I, I have to take ownership, right? So our generation is quick to demean and slander this new generation as being too entitled and coddled, but we were part of this. Well, of course we are. I hear 
parents talk about the younger generation as though they had nothing to do with it, which is astounding to me. But I guess it was 2008 or 2009. I think about it as though big cargo planes flew over the United States and dropped millions of smartphones all over the country. And at that point, there was a shift. And the shift was that these young people stopped living their lives so much as they spent time watching others live their lives. Yes. The lives they're watching being lived aren't real. They're these fantasy lives that these influencers and all are putting up on the internet, and they compare themselves to that. And by comparison, they come out on the short end of the stick because, as I say, those are fantasy lives. They've started getting their driver's license later. They're starting to date later. They have fewer friends. Their interaction with the real world truly is being crowded out by their involvement in the virtual world. And they'll say, oh, I I met him and we've been dating. And then it's 10 minutes into the conversation where I find out they never met him at all. They call that meeting somebody. They never met. It's all on the internet. What is up with this? Right. Or a child will say, you know, this person was so mean to me and I'll be thinking in real life, like somebody was really hurting them in real life. And then I'll find out later it was because they didn't like a comment or they sent the wrong emoji. And, uh, you know, so listen, what we're saying is (laughs) we can go on and on about these crazy kids today. But what we're really saying is that we are watching a crisis unfold. And we parents more than ever need to show up in a different way. It was hard enough for you and I to be present with our kids. Talk about the distractions that parents have today. I watch nanny after nanny, parent after parent, walking their kids in the stroller on their phone. And I watch myself on my phone. So this is not to appear sanctimonious, but we are all in a crisis of attention and presence. And that's why I integrate spirituality and meditation in all my teachings and the principles of presence, because that is what is the missing ingredient. Because when you're present, you're paying attention. When you're paying attention, you're attuning and you're readily available for your children as they need you versus you projecting onto them in a distracted way or a traumatized way. So all of this work to be a parent more now than ever requires more energy and more consciousness from the parent. And you put a lot of this on the parent. And I think almost all belongs on the parent. Of course, the kid has choices to make and all. But as I say, I think we really write on the slate of who they are. We color their personality by what we allow them to do, what we reward, what we fail to reward. I think you're so right. And that's why I love this concept of the conscious parenting. I did a show on New Year's resolutions, which I'm not big on New Year's resolutions, but I think any time for any reason that you stop and say, okay, let me call time out here and focus on what it is that I want to achieve or do, whether it's March 18th or July 14th or whenever it is. I think it's always great if you stop and do that. But people ask me if I would recommend a resolution to somebody. And I said, yeah, I would, but it wouldn't be losing weight or exercising more or changing jobs or blah, 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 blah. It would simply be, be who you are on purpose. Mm -hmm. Don't just wake up every day and react to what's coming through your front door or your phone or happening at work, but be who you are, do what you do, choose what you choose on purpose. That's what you're saying about parenting is consciously choose what you're doing as a parent. Do this on purpose. Think about it. Consciously choose it. And recognize that what I've said forever and ever is when you choose the behavior, you choose the consequences. We're seeing these consequences obtain in these children's lives 
later and later, is it ever too late for a parent to change the way they're interacting with and parenting their child? No, of course not, because every new moment with your child is a new opportunity to uh, forge a bond and a connection and to apologize and to take accountability. However, that adult child now is kind of, you know, developed. So if we are looking to influence again, it's those early 10, 15 years, and I'm being generous here, um, to, to really do the work. And I often tell parents, please do not have children if you don't understand that you are not having them so you feel better about yourself. You're not having them to show off on Facebook. This is not a trinket, a trophy, or a prize, or uh, one more medal. This has nothing to do with you. This has to do with you willing to go on this adventure to raise this spirit as they need to be, not as you think they should be or uh, how your parents did it. You have to really tailor the approach very intentionally. But in order to do that, you have to have attention. You have to have intention. You have to have focus. You have to have presence, which means you have to really be there. You know, many times parents will say, oh, you know, I have three children or four children. And I often say, why? Why do you have so many children if you're, if you're so overwhelmed and so stressed? And they'll say, well, I had these children. So my first child could have a family, could have siblings. <laughs> Never mind it's mayhem in the house and the first child could, you know, be bothered with the other children. Now the parent is in, you know, in a tizzy because these children don't get along. And I often tell parents that we start the parenting journey on such a misconception you're not having children for any reason. It shouldn't be for any reason, except that you've decided that you're willing to raise this being as they need to be. Don't do your older child a favor. Don't do your grandparents a favor. Don't do your husband a favor or your partner. Do it because you understand what it takes. And what it takes is it's not going to be pretty for your ego. It has to be for that child's essence. Yeah, And that really takes some forethought. I know now we see our birth rate dropping down to really dangerous levels as far as this country is going in terms of sustaining. So everybody's wanting people to have children, but you really have to think about this before you do it because there's nothing involved in proper parenting Accept sacrifice. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of rewards, of course, but it's sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Is there a time in your mind when parents have the opportunity to, I guess, reparent? As you said, when these kids get up to a certain age, you've done what you're going to do, and it's going to be when they're adults, certainly, or when they're going to start to have their own children, those first seven to 10 years, that ship has sailed. Is there benefit in sitting down with a child in the later years and saying, I made a mistake. I did some things that I could have done a better job on, and I don't want you to proliferate that generationally. I want to talk to you about that now and redefine our relationship. And I call that reparenting sometimes instead of just continuing on the journey, is that worthwhile? Oh my goodness. It's so amazing and profoundly transformational. If a parent can do that, and if the child will give them the audience to do that. Just the other day, I had to publicly declare an apology to my child because she was going on and on in front of other people about how I traumatized her. And I, I knew I had messed her up a little bit, but not my goodness. She was acting like I had traumatized her. But instead of getting defensive, I just said, you know, I was just ridiculously pushy and I publicly declare an apology. And she said, you're forgiven. But children, children need that, you know, and we parents get so defensive. But that was their experience. The way she told the story and the way adult children will tell their story about your parenting will be very different than how you remembered it. And oh often we parents so different and they remember every Every mistake, right? They will not remember all the good times that all the times you salvaged the situation and showed up, they will remember your unconscious moments. But that's such a beautiful thing because what that means is that they're still holding some pain around that. 
and they're asking to be validated. And the fact that they bring it up in adulthood, as annoying as it is, and as, you know, shortchanged in terms of memory, and it's just, you know, their own story being told, it's a powerful opportunity for parents to take that moment to heal and to say, you know what, I may see it differently, but I hear you. I see that you're still holding a grudge and you're really in pain about my unconsciousness. And I was foolish. And I I really want to tell you that I apologize for hurting you. It doesn't take anything for us to do that. But some parents will just not do it because they get so defensive, which is the reason why the child is still holding on to that grudge. So reparenting is an endless opportunity to heal, to take accountability, to release your child of their grudges. What a wonderful thing if we can do that for our children. I'm speaking with the wellness director, Geffen Academy at UCLA, Ross Zabo. Ross spent over half of his life finding ways to make mental health approachable. Given that we do have so many more young people today that are experiencing pathological levels of anxiety, depression, loneliness, problems with mental and emotional well-being. What is your advice to parents to help keep these kids safe and to get them on as solid ground as possible? You've got a bunch of parents listening right now. As the wellness director, what would be your best advice to parents? It's a couple of key things. Number one, know your family history. So, you know, I think I was 27 when I sat down with my parents and asked, hey, did anyone else in our family have a mental health disorder? And I'm not even exaggerating. Like 18 minutes later, they stopped naming people. <laughs> you go, hey, yes. thanks for telling me. <laughs> you're like, okay, so there's two parts of knowing your family history. One is if you have mental health disorders or addiction in your family, you need to be extra vigilant. Because that is one of the biggest determining factors of if your kids are going to have it. Yeah. Uh, and then after knowing your family history, know more about those disorders so that you can spot them earlier on. So that if you see outbursts in behavior that are persistent as a kid, well, like maybe it's bigger than just that emotional development or that milestone. So knowing your family history has to be first and foremost. What a good point. We don't think about that enough. We all know there's genetic predispositions, but we don't think about it enough. No. Three of my grandparents were alcoholics. Yeah. What a great point. So, you know, the chances of me abusing substances, if I started at a young age, were really high. My parents didn't know that. My parents just had to survive living with the kind of classic 1950s alcoholic parents, right? So that's hard. Uh, the second piece is... If you know your family history and you, you, you learn about these disorders and you can spot warning signs earlier, you really want to start a system where you can have conversations with your kid from a young age instead of confrontation. And that's hard. I think as parents, it's easy to say, do this, don't do this. Uh, and then you fall into that model from a, a young age and then the kid grows up in a dynamic of either pushing back against it, back talking, whatever it is, or engaging in it. And one of the things I always try to do, especially with my students, is try to make them the expert of the issue that I'm teaching them. So if we're talking about vaping, instead of starting the lesson with don't vape, I ask them, what do you know about vaping? Who do you know that's vaping? You don't have to name names, but like, what do they do? Why do they vape? What's happening in that system for them? And then, uh, you know, are you vaping? And that is a much different dynamic where that kid gets to feel like the expert and is a part of the conversation. And then, yeah, I might still have to get to a point where they're like, yo, don't do this. Here's all the reasons why. But at least they feel included versus constant confrontation. And then I think another thing parents really need to do is model the behavior they want to see. You can't just tell your kids you want them to talk about their mental health. You want them to be balanced while you're working 40 hours a day <laughs> and like not sleeping, screaming at your partner, and modeling all the behaviors you don't want them to have. You, you really, if you want your kids to have mental health, as difficult as it is in today's society where mental health isn't prioritized and it's not affordable in a lot of ways, right, for families, go outside and take a family walk and make sure it's something you do, even if they push back, because the second you give it on a boundary, a kid learns how to manipulate you. Being a child is really just trying to figure out how to manipulate parents into doing what you want. And if you don't have boundaries for what you are prioritizing as mental health, well, of course, they're going to get out of it. So, so that's an important piece. The next piece is 
take care of yourself because no one else is going to. You know, I think, at least in my experience, and, and I've had, I don't have the experience of, of, of reaching as many people as you have, but I have spoken over 2 million people in person. And the amount of parents who are in a dark place, who have a kid who doesn't want to admit they have a problem, who doesn't want to accept it, and is staying up, you know, all hours of the night because they're worried that kid's not going to come home, is a really common situation right now. My dad used to tell this gut-wrenching story where he would say he got to a point where he was convinced that one night it was just going to be the police at the door telling him I was dead. And in those moments, he knew that he had to take care of his mental health, that if he didn't take care of his mental health, much like the oxygen mask on a plane, he wasn't going to be able to give back to me. And so he always left the door open and he had let me know like, hey, Here's what's available to you. I care about you. I love you. And his, his hope was to not lose himself in the process. And I don't think parents are able to have enough time to do that. But it's, it's got to be a priority, even if it's 15 minutes, even if it's 30 minutes of joy. And if, if you are in a, a marriage, a relationship, a partnership, taking time for each other, too, so that you can maintain that partnership and not lose it amidst everything that's happening with the kids. My oldest brother has bipolar disorder and was in a psychiatric ward um, throughout his uh, college experience. I had my own struggles, and my parents never stopped going on dates. They never stopped taking a one- or two-day vacation. They never stopped trying to maintain what kept them strong because they wanted to maintain that for the family. And yeah, sometimes it was strange, but for the most part, I get what they were trying to do. So that would be my advice. Know your family history. Know what to look for. Try to have conversations versus confrontations. Um, model the mental health you want to see and take care of yourself. Well, that's a damn good checklist. And don't be afraid to have those boundaries. Yeah, boy. You know, I think technology and boundaries for parents has really been a struggle because, you know, if you give the kid that device, you're going to probably get to sleep. Yeah. But the device can't be the parent. Yeah. We don't want electronic babysitters. We used to yeah. do it with TVs. Now we're doing it with the devices. Yeah. Can't be. Dr. Sophie, thank you for coming back. You get down to something that you call sweep. It's a collection of tools that will give parents really vital information they need to understand themselves. Let's walk them through it quickly. S is for sleep. Yes. Why is that so important? Well, for eight hours or at least eight hours, we should be restoring our brain with quality and quantity of good sleep. So when our kids aren't doing it, we're not doing it. It's not a value in our home. It's a problem because you've got people who are angry and irritable and intolerable. So you got to start off every day having good sleep. Yeah. And when you say restore the brain, this is not a metaphor. No. <laughs> when people are getting quality uninterrupted sleep, the brain is at work replenishing itself biochemically right. in ways that increase frustration tolerance concentration, a number of things yeah. that need to happen biochemically within the brain. Right. Because if they don't, what the trickle-down effect is, then you've got an irritable mood. You have no good insight. Your judgment is off. You're impulsive. There's a lot of downfall from not good sleep. So you're building a house on sand if you don't start off with a brain that is rested and replenished right. biochemically and neurotransmitter-wise. Now, W in sweep is work. Yeah. You say you're talking about however many hours a day you spend utilizing physical and mental energy towards a targeted result. That means if you want your family to be a certain way, you got to invest in it. Yeah, 100% you have to. And you have to do it. And you have to be willing and wanting to do it. It's not just, I have to work today. Work should have some purpose and meaning for you whether you're staying home and you're taking care of your children or you're out and you're the CEO of something or whatever you do, it has to have purpose. You need purpose. Yeah. And if you're a working parent and you're working outside the home, you've got to strike a balance and understand I'm working for a reason here right. to provide for my family. I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm going to give myself permission to do this. It's for a meaning and a purpose. And when I'm done, I'm done. And then I'm going to go and right. focus. And hopefully they enjoy those that time that they're spending doing it. They're not bitter. They're not angry. They're not coming home with resentment. 
Yeah. E, the first E is for eating, and it's the importance of nutrition, of course. This is for the parent and the child, because if you don't have good nutrition, again, physiologically, you're not going to be where you need to be in terms of frustration tolerance, durability. Right. It's going to disrupt your sleep. Your blood sugar is going to make a child act out of control when they're hypoglycemic. Yeah. You know, many times kids don't have lunch and they're out of control and parents don't understand that. They didn't even eat their lunch. And then emotional expression is the other E. And you say for a parent to be emotionally healthy, they've got to really turn their ear inward and be in touch with their thoughts and their feelings. Correct. And find an appropriate way, not yelling, not screaming, not stuffing down, but an appropriate way to give their feelings a voice. Right. I tell parents, like, you should have 50% come from your head, 50 from your heart, and it should meet and come out your mouth. Everything has to have a thought and a feeling and communicate it, deal with it, and show your children by role modeling. That's how you emote. Yeah. Now, P is for play. And you say this doesn't get enough attention. I think particularly right now with anxiety high, with depression high, loneliness at all-time high levels, it's important for people at any age, adults, if there's a grandparent in the home, there's got to be some time where you do some play because it's cathartic. It lets Absolutely. things go. It's self-soothing. You need the tools to be able to take care of yourself. Like when you have a child in a crib, you want them to learn to soothe themselves to sleep instead of having to you know, cry themselves to sleep. Well, you're teaching yourself with hobbies how to soothe yourself. That's why there are things you do by yourself, things you do with others. But on a rainy day, you need a soothing hobby. It's life-saving. It really is. Yeah. And some of that play that you do together, you just need some time to be kind of silly, of you know, course. with your kids. Right. If your kid tries to make you laugh, laugh. For God's sakes, yes. That's a gift. Yeah. They're, they want to tell you how they love you. They want to tell you, you know, am I good enough? Laugh. You're doing them such a world of good their self-esteem, their self-worth, and then they see you smile. Yeah. It takes a thousand attaboys to erase yes. one, you're not good yes. enough. Yes. I mean, that's the other thing at, at DCFS. I saw a lot of kids when I'd walk into these homes who they were the parents and the parents were the children and they were doing anything they could do to make their house work. These poor kids at five, six, eight, ten, twelve, 10, 12. And really it should have flipped. And so that was my job to flip it without having to break them up. Yeah. It's really sad sometimes when parents communicate to their kid that they're disappointed right, in their child. That's so painful. Right. And most of the time it's them disappointed in themselves. So take a look inside and you can change a lot of that. And then you have a different outcome with your kid. You talk a lot in the book about having a framework for the family, having guardrails and having some definition about values you really need to know who your family is and what that family name stands for. That's critical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's the point of having a family then? It's just a group of people hanging out together then. If there's no purpose and no cohesiveness and no focus, what do you stand for? I remember when Jay was, I guess he was in seventh or eighth grade, and he had a friend over and... Jordan was seven years younger, so he was maybe four or five. And, of course, he wanted to follow his brother around all the time. And Jay's friend was over, and Jordan went to go get something or whatever. And his friend said, hey, quick, let's, let's run in here and close the door and, and hide, and he won't find us. And Jay said, uh, no, we don't do that. Right. That's a family value. He said, what do you mean? He said, well— we we just don't do that here. That that would be mean, and that would upset him, and we just don't do that here. We don't treat each other that way. Right. And I overheard that from the other room, and I was really proud to hear him say that, just like, we don't do that. Right. Our family doesn't do that. Right. We're not mean to each other. We don't do that. And that was the only explanation he needed. That's not who we are. We don't do that. Right. 
without knowing it, he was expressing a family value that we just don't do that. Right. And he got that from the role modeling of you and Robin. And that's important for kids to know, right? There are certain things just like we're the Sophies and we don't do that. Right. Right. We don't steal. Right. We don't right. do we don't, drugs. Right. Just, we don't do certain right. things. Right. hundred percent. Yes. And you've got to ask yourself, what do your kids know about your family values? What are the things that we just don't do? And I don't think many parents have an answer. That's why we wrote this book, because they can certainly do some inventory and make some and for the rest of their lives have great family values to instill and pass on. I think a lot of people maybe know those things or have those things. They just haven't inventoried and articulated them. Yes, I agree. I think you really are going to cause people to do that when you get into chapter nine talks about role modeling. Chapter eight talks about communicating and connecting. Chapter seven, the five essentials of your new family portrait. That's where you get into all those things. And I think most people are going to find, I do know those things. Right, they do. We just haven't really acknowledged them out loud because we make life decisions. Every day. Life decisions are things that you make and then you just embrace them. Like most people make the life decision that they don't steal. So they might get up in the morning and say, oh, man, I'm running late for work and I need a little cash. Do I want to rob that 7-Eleven on the corner or stop by the ATM? They don't have that discussion with themselves because they've made the life decision, I don't steal. Right. So they don't have to debate that. They just go to the ATM. Right. And they've instilled that in their children. Yeah. You're causing them here to say, let's write some things down and make sure— that we acknowledge that because kids take pride in that. Absolutely. And parents sometimes think that they don't have you know, value, but they're huge family values that you've just assumed yeah. and taught. But they're of value. I grew up in sports, and so we learned some of those things in sports. Yeah. That yes. we hustle. We yes. give 100%. Yes. We support our teammates. We show up to practice on time. They're values that you learned as a team. So you incorporate those right. things. That was important for me because my dad was a drunk, so he yeah. didn't go into a lot of that kind of thing. So you get them somewhere, but parents can give those things to their kids. And they do a lot of times without even knowing, yeah. just by role modeling. And you spell it out in here, and you're going to cause them to do these things on purpose. Yeah.